All right, guys, welcome back to the Part-Time Hunter Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Gross. This is number three zero, the Big 30, Dad. Got you back on the podcast. My co-host tonight, Dwayne Gross, and on the other end of the mic out there in North Carolina is Jason Red, one of the co-owners or and uh, founder of Timber Ninja. Jason, how you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm doing all right. Just uh, dealing with being in the height of the buying season of hunting products. Dude, yeah, absolutely, man. And and just a shout-out, guys, uh, you know, Jason's <laughs> super busy. He's uh, uh, definitely getting uh, saddle hunting and that type of mentality. He's really trying to, uh, as they say, the worm is turning on social media, and you're starting to see more and more people geared towards that, uh, you know, the kickoff of whitetail, you know, fall, waterfowl, all that stuff is starting to finally get moving. And uh, I know those guys at Timber Ninja stay busy anyway. But innovation, cool products. We're going to get into to all of it. But uh, first to kick it off, Jason, just go ahead and tell everybody, you know, kind of y'all's social media handles and uh, where everybody can go and follow along with you guys. Uh, I mean, we're at Timber Ninja Outdoors on everything, YouTube, um, Facebook, Instagram. And I think they post on TikTok. I don't know. I mean, I don't have it. <laughs> I think maybe they'll post on there too. I don't know. But yeah, that's where you can find us. Dude, that's awesome. And you guys have a really good YouTube channel also. It's kind of a, it's it's kind of hit or miss, it seems like, with these, uh, especially <laughs> mobile hunting uh, communities. It's like, man, they have a kick ass website, and then guys want to, of course, go see tutorials and, and how to's and new product launches. But you guys have a really good and active. YouTube presence. I was actually doing some uh, some scoping out of you guys this week before the show, but uh, really good how tos, uh, stick videos, platform videos, in depth stuff, and you guys drop a lot of uh, tips and tricks as well. And you guys, if you guys are out there listening to the podcast, me and Dad actually just dropped a tips and tricks uh, video on our YouTube channel where we go over the entire mobile hunting kit between me and him, different products, different points of views, and and just something that kind of gets your wheels turning towards deer season but man I'm, I'm curious to know i kind of read the bio on the website but kind of give us an insight on how you guys uh it sounds like it was three of you in the beginning but you know kind of hearing it from from you guys you know how did timber ninja get started and kind of the the concept behind it um uh, well i mean to be honest with you i mean first off uh i appreciate that plug on the youtube because i think it's pretty lackluster so, <laughs> uh, uh i mean i was just saying telling bo today i was or i was like man we gotta do more work on the youtube because I, I slack on that uh so yeah i appreciate that uh, that's a good compliment but uh man um to be honest like it, there wasn't like a plan or a strategy to start this company it was like um i i've always been a mobile hunter since i was I mean, since I started hunting, I, you know, like I was messaging with you today, I, I grew up in Arkansas and, um, I grew up really poor and, you know, we, we just hunted public land. I mean, it wasn't a cool fad. It, mobile hunting was just, I mean, we didn't call it anything. It was just hunting to us. Right. I mean, we just, we hunted public land cause that's the only thing we could afford to do. And my grandfather and people we hunted with, uh, had creative stuff we would come up with and to hunt public land down in Arkansas. That's where I'm from. And, uh, that's just been the only way I've ever really hunted. I haven't hunted much, uh, private land. I mean, the private land I have hunted has been like small parcels or 
I was on a lease for like two years that just really didn't fit my fit me anyway. I don't like being caged in, but um, you know, I moved to the mountains in twenty nine or twenty uh, two thousand nine. Sorry, uh, and I started hunting public here and traveling and was carrying, you know, like everybody else, I guess, carrying climbers, carrying, you know, cast stands with big three-step sticks and chugging through the mountains uh, uh, on the East Coast. And I, I have a background in endurance sports, so I've been around carbon fiber, you know, and bikes and a lot of other gear. And uh, I was looking for ways to lighten up my kit. And when I started doing that, like really the mobile hunting craze i guess if you want to call it hadn't taken off so there wasn't really any options out there and i uh wanted to develop a set of carbon fiber climbing sticks for myself and nobody had ever done it and i just got put my head to it and just i mean it took me thousands of dollars to kind of work it out and i made myself a set of climbing sticks and uh, with no intentions of starting a company, uh, I, I already owned another. Well, actually, at that time, I owned two businesses, and uh, I didn't really. I wasn't looking for another business. I was just uh, making stuff for myself, and I finally got the sticks to work. And my friends around here that hunt saw the sticks and were like, "Hey, you need to. You should start selling these to people." And I was like, "I don't have the bandwidth or the interest." And, uh, pretty much got talked into it with, by my two business partners, Tyler and Jordan. And I, you know, I'm like, just like anybody else, man, like I spent a lot of time, I'm a gear, I am a gear nerd to a degree. I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very minimalist, but I do like gear, uh, especially, you know, white tail hunting gear. And I like clothing and packs. That's like the things that I've always been nerded nerd about and same uh, here i'm a gear nerd dude i, I can totally relate to that <laughs> yeah i know man it's 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 you spend a lot of times in a tree you know you got a lot of things to think about right exactly and, uh and so like i had all these other ideas of ways i could do this or that and you, you know so i said well all right if you guys want to help out and start the company and you know we can roll out but i was like we're not gonna be a stick company we're gonna be a mobile hunting products company and we're gonna the innovations company, like, um, I never, I mean, I mean, I don't know, you know, people follow us, like, we, we're not traditional in the aspect, we don't, we haven't done a lot of marketing until this year, uh, it's all been like grassroots and not, not really any pro staff, uh, anything like that, we're not trying to sell ourselves, we just try to make cool products and it, and it, it sells itself, I mean, it's kind of like what we do and so we started with the sticks and that was May of 2020 when we launched. And it was so funny because we started building up some hype, I guess, in November uh, of 19, starting to show some pictures of the sticks and getting some stuff out there since we decided to like, create a company. And we put together an email list and said, hey, if you're interested in buying these sticks, sign up for this and we'll keep you up to date. And I, I remember there was like... Uh, 200 people or so that signed up and we were just laughing. We were like, man, if we just sold half these people's sticks, that'd be pretty awesome. And, and, you know, time has flown since then. And when we've sold 
thousands of those sticks, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and then we've launched other products and yeah, man, it's been a, a really cool, um, endeavor and adventure. I mean, it, it's definitely, I get so many messages from people that want to start a company and, and a lot of them want to do it because, you know, they don't like their day job and they have these ideas and they want to be in the hunting industry. And a lot of them think that, oh, you start a hunting company, you just hunt all the time. Well, that's not the case. It's a small business. You know, you got to, there's a lot more that goes into it than just creating something. And then all of a sudden you're um, a full-time hunter. I can tell you that. <laughs> Oh, I dude, mean, yeah, and and it, it seems like you guys, you know, I, there's something to be said about a company that gets started uh, through, you know, actually hunting and and seeing a need for stuff and innovating and it, it. But I mean, I think truly, like your hardcore guys out there that like yourself, you know, started mobile hunting out of the necessity to not carry a a crazy, you know, thirty pound summit up up a mountain to try to get to a spot. You know, it, it's coming from a place of experience. Uh, a place of guys that maybe DIY'd a lot of stuff. A lot of guys that that mobile hunting community is such a tight knit community, and I think a lot of guys can sniff out a company that's trying to uh, trying to ride the wave or like get on a fad or like that's the newest you know hotness in the whitetail world. But it seems like Timber Ninja really did start from like guys that get out there and hang in a tree all day. That's how they deer hunt. So it, it seems like and, and like you said, a lot of innovation. Like you, your guys' website. To me, you know, when I first went on it, it's like a one-stop shop. Like, you truly can get completely outfitted with a Timber Ninja system. That's kind of what we want to dive into, dude. Just, you know, products, kind of your thoughts behind it, and kind of the, the inspiration, I guess, behind some of these lines. Yeah, I mean, we've built into that for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a challenge because, you know, it's still – kind of a part-time job i mean i'm fortunate that i own another business so i can kind of split my time you know depending on which one needs the most attention and uh right. yeah we we've kind of yeah we've definitely built ourselves into being trying to be a one-stop shop but you know i mean the whole emphasis behind us is like we want to create gear that people need we're not trying to make widgets to sell you know like I'm not going to put something on the market that I don't think somebody actually needs that can benefit them and make them more efficient. You know, like I'm not going to say my equipment's going to uh, make you a better hunter because the only thing that's going to make you a better hunter is boots on the ground and woodsmanship. Right. That's uh, it. Yep. I mean, exactly. I, I really, I really don't even need this stuff to hunt. I mean, the thing is, it's funny. Like I keep trying to progress myself into being more of a ground hunter, even with my bow. Um, even though I make mobile hunting gear, but, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I love the products. I love making things that work. And I mean, everything that we, we develop and bring to market, it has thousands of hours of field testing before we put it out. And, and, um, and, and not just from our team, you know, now we've expanded, we have other people in the field, but it, you know, like we won't release a product unless it's thoroughly field tested and also we won't release something unless it there's a need for it you know i mean everything that we've done like you know when we can get into more details if you'd like but uh like our platform like we didn't make a platform just to make a platform we made a platform because i was having issues personally because i shoot a, 
uh, I shoot traditional equipment for uh, archery. And with all the saddle platforms on the market, they're all small and compact and keep you close to the tree. And I was having problems with limb contact. And and uh, so we made a platform that was deeper. And also, like, the platforms that I tried to use, they didn't cam very well. So we spent, I don't know how many, I mean, we, we've been developing this thing. This is our third year uh, of working on it. And we just launched it, you know, a few, uh, I guess a month ago. Wow. Uh, just to try to make it cam and now the thing cam so good that you can cam it on a tree and take the strap off and it's still sitting there you know like i, I don't believe in toe hooking and uh we as a company we don't believe in subpar products and not to say our products are perfect because nothing is perfect for everybody right i mean everybody's got their own style and um you know preferences and um so you know we we, we try to do the best we can to make products that can work for a lot of people but mainly we just build stuff that works for us and you, you find out you know there's a lot of people that are like you you know and like the things that you do so it ends up working out but because i mean one of the beefs i've had with the hunting industry is that there's so many companies that make products that are marketing companies and they design products and release them to sell and then they allow their customers to be the field testers and then they have to do generation two generation three generation four that's just that that's never going to set well with me and our organization and if, if, if we're having to make different generations because we didn't do a thorough testing in the field and and also independent third-party testing outside of our facility to make sure stuff is safe Hey Jason, you y'all are from Canton, North Carolina. How far is that from Asheville? Uh, we're twenty minutes west. Okay, we've been over to the Biltmore and visited that before. And uh, that that Interstate Forty, uh, I guess they're still in under construction. It probably always will be. But uh, Daniel got to uh, drive a little bit down through there, and uh, the walls uh, on that thing. He he was just a nervous wreck by the time we <laughs> we got out of there. Oh God, yeah, those those. <laughs> 12-foot concrete dividers that make you feel like you're going to scrape your car for, like, 60 miles. I hate that highway. I drive, a, <laughs> I drive an 18-wheeler. I drive local here. And uh, so it, it didn't bother me. I mean, I was, I'm comfortable doing that. But uh, I've run over into Robbinsville and uh, Andrews and over that way. So mm-hmm. I've seen some of y'all's mountains. Used to be stationed at Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg, Back yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. But, oh, nice. Yeah. But whenever uh, – your transition from the Delta flatlands, I guess, to the mountains, how how did that, uh, did you adjust to it pretty good, or did it take you a while to figure that out? From a hunting perspective? Yes, sir. Yeah, it did, man. Um, you know, I, I was used to being in the Delta, hunting the flats, and, you know, uh, in the river bottoms, and, you know, essentially down there, sloughs and water a lot of times dictate animal travel right and i was also accustomed to animals being the flats which here you know where you do have flats you can have animals but and there will be sign there but that's not where you're going to kill the deer uh so yeah it took me it took me a number of years and i would say i guess i'm i'm still learning every day to kind of figure out how animals use terrain but I will say, in my opinion, if 
you learn to hunt terrain like this, uh, if you can find the deer, they're a little bit easier to pattern than they are in the flats. Because, right. uh, you know, the Jurassic terrain heavily dictate, dictates their travel, you know. Does most of the, the deer that, I know you chase the mature deer, but are they uh, elevation oriented? I mean, do you start high and go go down? Or, I mean, how, how's your... Uh, how do you go about as far as getting into where you're hunting at, I guess you? Uh, well, it depends on access. Um, I mean, I'm not very fortunate to where I have a lot of areas where I can access from the bottom. I mean, ideally, I would like to access from the bottom of the home, but a lot of times I have to come in from up top. Um, our deer density here is just so low. Uh, it takes a lot of time to find deer. Uh, a and I mean, there's just not a lot. I mean, we have a really good age class because you have to have so many places to hide. Right. But um, but you know, it it, it really, I, I find most of my mature bucks up higher for sure. Um, I, I rarely find them down low. I mean, maybe sometimes in the early season they'll be a little bit lower, but primarily higher elevation is where I find them because it's a vantage point for them and as you know, most of us know mature mature deer are solitary creatures, and they're they're not typically going to be where you find all the deer. Like they like to be around them, but I am a believer that deer, you know, like have personalities, and the ones that are um, a little more elusive are the ones you know from birth. Uh, I think they're the ones that end up living the longest and are able to get older. Uh, the ones that hang out with all the other deer are the ones that end up getting shot and don't reach maturity. So, um, yeah, I mean, around here, I, I tend to find them up higher. Um, you know, as far as hunt, hunting them and being able to kill them, you can get pictures of them down low, but that's usually nighttime pictures. And I, I sometimes utilize that in a, a new area to uh, locate a deer, but then I'll backtracking because I know I'm not going to kill him down there where I'm getting night pictures of him, I, I, I typically end up harvesting them um, higher up, closer to where the bed and then spending most of their time. And and you normally, or I guess you hunt national forests or uh, WMA? Yes, sir. National forests? Uh, I, around home here, yeah, primarily national forests. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. Uh, WMAs, to me, when they start putting food plots and doing the you know, work, everybody just thinks that's where the deer flock to. And, you know, you, you typically can have a little bit better population there because there's a lot of habitat improvement. Whereas our national forest here, you know, we don't, a lot of our, except for the areas where the elk are, they don't do any timber harvesting around here. We don't have clear cuts, um, no food plots. It's just raw, big woods, whitetail hunting, which is, that's what I like to do. I, I, I like to have more land to move around. And I honestly prefer lower deer densities because that also usually means lower people. Do you see that? I was watching some of your your clips about you hanging your trail cameras about the bear. Do, do you think does the bear interfere? I mean, do they? I know they live in the same woods, but do you do you see that that a mature buck will live around where bear are traveling or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got a buck on the wall that I had years of history with, and 
I've actually, I've got video and pictures of him squaring off with bears. Oh, wow. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, a mature buck's a tough animal, man. Like, they, you know, I mean, the thing also is a, a bear, typically, you know, the eastern black bear, they're, um, you know, omnivores. And I would say, for the most part, you know, they don't eat much meat anyway. So, uh, right. They're not out there. They're not out there like feeding on whitetails. I've never ran across a carcass that has been eaten by a bear. You know, definitely coyotes. But uh, yeah, I mean they they intermingle pretty well. Um, you know, especially the mature deer. You know, I would say they probably run off some of the younger deer, especially because a bear. If a bear is on a really good acorn crop. They can kind of they can be pretty territorial over that range for a little bit. I mean, I've seen them be territorial toward me, you know, um, if they're really honed in on the area. And that's more more along, uh, in regards to ones in sanctuary because we have a lot of bear sanctuaries up here. Oh right? wow! And they know there's they know they're safe in those sanctuaries, so they tend to be a little bit more of a pain in those areas. That was so funny. You said sanctuaries because like the whole time I'm I'm standing there on those balconies at the Biltmore House, I'm just like staring down at those giant woods, going, "Good God, there's got to be some deer and turkeys down there." I mean, you just you just know it's loaded. So yeah, I mean, I totally uh, I totally get that. Hey, so whitetail, like kind of, and this is something that you can relate to. Which uh, I've had some guys from the Midwest, you know, guys that you know, Illinois, Missouri, uh, you know, kind of like where you were from, the Delta. And even out in the Midwest, like Kansas, Texas, those guys, it's almost like when you tell them how to deer hunt here, it's more, and this is kind of my opinion, I wanted to pick your brain on it, it's more instead of food and ag-driven, it's almost like you, it's almost like it takes you back to your roots as a deer hunter. Like you're almost concentrating solely on sign, and then really like for us in North Georgia, like these, these mountains that we hunt, probably not as steep as the stuff near where you're at, but you know, I mean, your your natural food sources is, is what, Dad? I mean, your your, your acorn trees. Uh, I mean, if you've got any kind of natural browse, I mean, there there are a few guy, a few guys around us that do, you know, your typical food plot. But I mean, we're not going to go out and plant, you know, a hundred acres of soybeans where we live. It's just not it's not a sustainable thing. So it's it's almost like you really have to concentrate on deer movement. Uh, you know, really set up for for the right situation, corridors, pinch points, uh, signs, rut activity. It's, it's almost like you really have to more concentrate on the core bare bones of of a whitetail hunter versus, you know, concentration on ag is kind of my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're definitely not going to rely on ag up here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for not, sure. not just – no, I mean, I if you find – if you're a public land hunter here and you find some private ag – that's bordered by public, yeah, you're, you're going to see a better deer density there. But if you're big woods hunting in the national forest, you're going to have to rely solely on, and the deer are fine. Like, you know, I've got his, I mean, because it takes me, like, if I find a mature buck here, uh, if I'm able to kill one, it usually takes me a couple of years to kind of, like, really figure them out. And, and I usually have a lot of history with them. Um, by doing that and and I realized they don't move they don't range far it's not like they're running down to ag that's 10 miles away during the summer and then coming back to their uh, winter haunts you know I mean they 
they sustain themselves in the mountains, you know, depending on, you know, obviously mass is the number one protein form that gets them through, but mass is always not very consistent. So they have to rely upon other things, you know, stem, stem count stuff, you know, mushrooms, um, uh, you know, if it gets really bad, they'll start eating on, uh, roto buds and things like that. And Laurel, uh, they will, I mean, I've seen them eat a lot of weird stuff here. I mean, one of the biggest things like saplings, like, especially like maple saplings, they like that. Um, oak, oak buds. Yeah. I mean, you definitely, you have to hone in your woodsmanship because I mean, you know, since, a lot of our woods are old growth. You know, we don't have a lot of that high stem count stuff either, you know? So yeah, no. it's pretty impressive to me how, how a, 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 a deer up here. Cause I mean, our deer, we have some solid deer. If you can find them and they're big bodied. And I'm like, man, I don't see how these deer can get this big off <laughs> living off what they're living off. Dude, of. it, it, it's crazy how they like, like exactly like what you're explaining to these people and, and people listen to this podcast go, well, you know, we our deer just go to the soybean field every night, and they just eat. They pack on the protein, but it's like that. Those deer here, it's just crazy how how tough they are. Like the stuff they have to live in, the the lack of natural, you know, or, or man made stuff to eat. It's just it is it is truly incredible. So diving into saddle gear, mobile hunting as a whole, you know that community. What what would you say? And it's kind of. There's not really a wrong way to do it. I would say doing it, period, would be the, a great first step. But what do you think some of the pitfalls and maybe uh, for a guy that's it's looking to get into it, you know, really no matter what brand, but, you know, maybe they're looking at Timber Ninja. Like, how would somebody get started? What are some of the pitfalls and something that from a guy that's been doing it like yourself, you know, several, several years, you know, how, how could somebody get launched into mobile hunting the right way? Uh, I mean, that's a kind of a long answer, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I do feel that your best benefit for, I mean, it's one thing if you're hunting ground that you have history with, like you can kind of put together a better strategy and you still kind of need to be mobile because I mean, most of us know you can't go in and hunt a mature deer day in, day out without him figuring out that you're there right exactly so, so you got to move you got to move around and figure out where he's at like i don't see the same tree very much at all but you know i think it's, it's extremely important for guys that go out of state and don't have history and they're trying to you know they're doing their one week rut trip um i think you know that's a, a very important um uh, or, or mobile hunting is a very important tool for people that are in new ground and want to, you know, they need to move around to get on animals because you don't know, like you're coming into a, a blank canvas, right? Um, man, I mean, the pitfall, I mean, I think the biggest problem that people have is learning how to set up and where to set up. I think that's one of the biggest things, um, you know, as it relates to saddle gear, I mean, the saddle itself is just a tool, and I think the industry has, like, kind of, you know, pigeonholed it into being its own style of hunting, you know, but a saddle is just a fall restraint device. That's all it is. So, a saddle can be used with a tree stand. It can be used with a saddle platform. 
it can be stand on top of your stick or whatever you one stick or whatever you want to do but it is like the most um in my opinion and from my background in safety and rock climbing i think it's the most safe way to hunt because you have a lineman's belt that gets you up a tree uh safely where you can use both your hands to you know hang sticks um hang your stand or saddle platform or whatever but i think i guess i would say the biggest thing is a lot of people overthink it um and they you know in the beginning people are very afraid to like rely on the system to protect them you know because you're leaning back into a rope and that can be kind of scary right you're putting all of your your uh safety into this you know Oh, Lord, devices. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, the, the first time I did it, I was on ground level. And luckily, Dad had been doing it for a, at least a couple seasons before I, I even tried it. But but it, it took me a minute. Like, when you first lean back on that rope, and it's funny to go to these, you know, hunting events and see guys do it that are just like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to get up here and try this thing. I'm never, you know, I make fun of my buddy that does it, but I'm going to try it on. It's so funny when you lean back on that rope and it's just like, Oh my God, dude, imagine doing this at 20 foot or 18 foot or whatever. It, it, it is, a <laughs> from a guy that like me, I grew up with a, you know, a summit climbing stand, you know, that thing's like a Cadillac and, uh, yeah. dude, it, it, it takes, uh, <laughs> you got to really trust in what you're doing and know how to do it. Oh, you do. Uh, I mean, I mean, being a rock climber for a number of years, like it's the same thing there. You know, you, lean back and to a rope and to a harness and you're a thousand feet off the ground. And I mean, the thing that people don't understand is it matter if you're 20 feet or a thousand feet, like you can essentially die if, <laughs> if something goes south, but yeah. you have to definitely, you know, it, it, it you just got to trust the system. Uh, I mean, the thing about, you know, in the hunting industry, there's not as many regulations on manufacturers and, you know how they make their equipment and stuff like that so that that can be a little unnerving um but you know like if you're in the climbing community like there's there's not people making stuff out of their garage you know like everything is thoroughly tested and has to be before it can even go to market so um yeah i mean it's hard to say like what the big hang-up is for people because i think the biggest thing is just you know, getting out there and trying it. And you, you, it takes a while, like, to figure out what works for you as far as, like, tether height and, like, what system works best. And I would say one of the biggest things besides that is just um, getting comfortable shooting out of it. Um, it, it. Because, you know, you're closer to the tree and you you know you're on a small platform most of the time so like being able to get you know the right angle and setting up properly to get those appropriate shots you know because that that weak side shot's always you know the crux for everybody so like yeah um, that happened you know, to me last year two different times and <laughs> i've already been practicing this year and and i'm going to get better at it because uh <laughs> You know, you you don't want them to come from there, but that's where they're coming from. Is, <laughs> is your weak side exactly but, uh, a good thing? That oh, I, I know. A good thing that I found out is if you got a friend or someone that can show you their system, whether you know whatever name brand it is, because most of the companies being direct to consumer, 
you know, you, it's kind of hard to go test drive anything unless you go to one, one of the big events. And, you know, it, you, whenever I got, I got started out, I had a friend show me his system, and we went and hung, uh, met halfway between our houses and uh, played around a little bit. And I bought my first set, uh, set up off of, uh, off of the saddlehunter.com or the forum. And, uh, by, oh, nice. you know, somebody was getting out of it or, or upgrading one or the other. So I bought a whole, whole setup. And, uh, but getting started is the, if you don't know someone to, to get, cause it is expensive. I mean, you know, and, and it is a tool, I, you know, cause I've got uh, some lock on stands. I haven't used them since I started saddle hunting. Uh, got a climber or had a climber. I got rid of it to, to upgrade, but that, uh, buy once and cry once thing it, i found out that that really i mean if you can can do it it's best just to go ahead and get the the better better tools you know that you're going to use instead of because i think i've had four sets of sticks and uh from the what i bought originally what come with my my outfit and uh then you know you just get a little bit better, a little bit lighter, a little bit better, a little bit lighter, and by the time you do all that, you could have bought the best. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. You know, start. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, you know, I guess you bring up a great point. I, I would say that probably one of the biggest hurdles for people getting into it is, I would say probably the rope management. Um, that's probably you know getting used to using ropes and. You know, even if you're using like friction hitch, hitches or mechanical ascenders or whatever, like getting comfortable with that stuff is probably one of the biggest um, hurdles to getting started. I mean, yeah, and it's it's not cheap, you know. Um, it, it, there's a lot that goes into it, and yeah, I mean, there's a cost associated. But you know, the thing is, you can buy a, a system, you know. For let's say you know like our system i mean we're obviously the highest priced out there i mean you're going to be over a thousand dollars if you go everything with us uh that but but also you don't have to have four different setups you know um you know a lot of guys they retired toting around stuff so they would have three or four presets and I would see people doing that even on public land, you know, leaving oh, wow. presets if you can, uh, because they didn't want to be toting, you know, 30 pound rigs around everywhere. So, Oh yeah. And, and that's exactly like, like what you said. It's, it's, you know, I mean, a guy that's looking into it or maybe this summer he, you know, kind of dipped his toes into the saddle hunting community, which it, it's kind of a cool rabbit hole. I tell guys that are asking me about it on social media, it's like, yeah, it's almost like a subculture within Whitetail in itself, and it's it, it is a rabbit hole. And I'm telling you, there's all kind of avenues you can go, but uh, it, it's it's a really rewarding one because when you do finally get comfortable, you, you know, you you've worked your system out. Maybe you've done some DIY stuff. Maybe you've went to like TimberNinja.com and maybe got a full setup. But you're looking at it, and like it is an investment. But you got to ask yourself, like, okay, like like for me. For me and you, Jason, obviously we're kind of familiar with the waterfowl world. You've got guys out there with, you know, $500 Mossbergs, and you've got guys out there with $1,800 Benelli's. Yeah, they do the same thing, but the guy with the Benelli, he may not ever have an issue. That may be the last gun he ever hunts with. 
versus the guy with the Mossberg, he may get four or five seasons out of it, but it may, you know, crap out on him. So it, it's, it really is like what Dad said and kind of what you're leading to is, yeah, it's a thousand bucks. Sure, yeah, that's that's a good chunk of money to anybody out there, especially the part-time hunter, the guy listening to this podcast. But I'm telling you guys, invest in good gear, use it, be safe with it, and it's stuff that will last you. It's quality, and like Jason said, like they just put three years of R and D into this platform. It's not like you're buying something where they're just trying to rush it to market. So a lot of engineering, a lot of hours. A lot of R and D, not on their customer base, but internal R and D. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, it really is true. Like, put your money where your mouth is. Buy once, cry once, and be done with it. That's that's my whole principle there. And what- yeah, I mean, and buy from a credible company. I mean, the one thing I say to people, and it's not like I'm trying to like edge anybody out, but ask some questions to the person you're about to buy something from. Yes. like. I see so much of people referring to the weight ratings of their saddles based on the webbing weight rating. And that's not applicable because yes, the web webbing is going to do its job, but if you don't understand proper stitching patterns and proper, you know, the proper thread to use to stitch up a saddle per per se, um, that's going to be a problem. Webbing ain't worth a shit. If the <laughs> out. Yeah, no, that's a fact. If it comes that up, is, I mean, so ask, ask people like, you know, hey, what type of testing have you had done? Like, there is not a current standard under TMA for saddles. I mean, I'm on the board now for ASTM with a, a group of other, um, I mean, I guess some people would say like top tier um, saddle companies that are working to develop that. But there's nothing out there right now. And and the bad part of that, too, is that even though there, you know, once there is, there's no, there's not like an OSHA out there enforcing it on manufacturers. So do your due diligence as a consumer to ask the manufacturer, hey, have you tested this stuff, you know, not in your garage? Have you had third-party independent testing? If you have, can you show it to me? Like, I, I take, like, so my background as a, profession I've, I've i've been in safety for uh 18 years i'm a um i i, I sell all safety equipment i own a, a safety company um and i work for a fall protection company it's one of the companies we work for and i'm uh, a fall protection specialist i do training consulting um accident investigation all that stuff so you know like i knew enough to be dangerous and i've, I've applied osha fall protection standards uh, to our, our products to make sure our products meet OSHA's fall restraint standards, which is essentially 3,000 pound load rating on less than two foot uh, or two foot or less of uh, rope in the system. And so like I've sent like one of the companies that makes uh, some of our saddles is a fall protection company and they're an ISO certified third party testing facility. So they're, they have tested uh, those saddles at their facility. The other company that manufactures our saddles um, makes rock climbing harnesses. So they have testing for rock climbing harnesses. And like, so we test our products there, like our sticks. I send those to the TMA lab and, um, or a TMA certified lab in Georgia that tests our sticks to the standards 
uh, our platform went to that same lab. And the thing about like us, like I, you know, being in safety for so long, like I'm obviously very safety conscious and I, you know, being a climber, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen nasty stuff over the years, people getting hurt and it can happen at the blink of an eye. Like I, and I grew up old school. Like I grew up wearing no harness. I mean, essentially climbing cotton spindles nailed into a tree to standing on a, a piece of plywood wedged in a Y of a tree at 30 <laughs> feet with, with no harness. Like I've been there and done that, but like, the thing is, like, accidents just happen, you know? And yep. it, 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 so I, I think people really need to do their due, due diligence to make sure they're getting uh, proper equipment that is manufactured, you know, with safety in mind. And it costs a lot of money. I mean, like, you know, you're looking at, you know, to test a, a set of sticks, you know, it's like 2200 bucks, you know? And if you're starting out as a new company, that's a lot of money. Oh yeah, you know? uh, absolutely. Insurance is a lot of money. Like that's the thing. Make sure that the people you're that you're buying equipment from are uh, insured. I mean, like, man, <laughs> you don't know how much you know how many months I went or we went um, paying for insurance out of pocket because we weren't making enough to pay for the insurance. It's expensive. Wow. And it goes up. The more product you you sell, they audit you every year to see how much you sell because the more you sell it's a higher liability right so your premium goes up right i mean like coming and, and the thing is the barrier of entry is two hundred fifty thousand dollar a year sales volume which is essentially about i think our insurance when we got started was like around a thousand bucks a month wow I, that takes a lot of sticks oh, you know yeah. we should start to, <laughs> to sell to even make the money to pay the insurance so wow. it, it's like and yeah. So, I mean, I just, you know, challenge people to just ask those questions to the people you're going to buy from because, you know, we all think that nothing's going to happen, but things happen. I mean, there was, I, I to my record, there was two people that died last year saddle hunting. And both of those cases were suspension trauma. Does that mean that they choked to death or just? Uh, suspension, suspension trauma is, so if you fall and you're, hung in a harness um everything sucks up you know like if you're in a saddle or if you're in a fall protection harness all the webbing you know it's going to cut know, the blood carries you down it cuts the blood flow off in your uh arteries and your legs and depending on your weight that can happen anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours wow you got to take pressure off so you know to think about it if you're i mean one of the guys that died was a uh, he was one sticking lost his his stick kicked out he couldn't connect with his feet he was a bigger guy and he he had no way of uh getting footing and he couldn't he didn't have cell service to my understanding so he couldn't call anybody to helping oh, help him sad. and yeah i mean that can happen we hunt in remote places right so exactly. like you gotta have those like uh, things in check so my point of that is you know you get injured you die you know somebody's going to be looking for some type of reparations you know your wife or whatever so you want to make sure you buy from a company that has insurance that can help out your family or if you get severely injured you know paralyzed whatever i mean how many times have you heard of people getting paralyzed from tree stand accidents like it, it's a common thing and i hate to get morbid here but it's the reality um and you know you like 
I, I, I never want to have an insurance claim. That's why we do as much testing as we can. But, you know, like I do want, if something was to happen and something just out of the blue, you know, a manufacturer failure that we didn't catch or something caused the, something to fell in our product and somebody got injured, I want to make sure they're taken care of. I mean, I, I, I do value my consumers highly. And so, but, you know, just ask those questions. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go down that rabbit hole, but that. Oh, no, no, I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you did. I mean, that's something that uh, kind of what we're leading to is like, make sure that like, when, like when you reach out to Timber Ninja, they can get a hold of you or they can get a hold of your staff. And that's a really tangible positive thing about your company is like they can actually reach out and talk to you like the guy that was behind the design that does the testing that does the the investment into the, all the background stuff that guys don't know when they just go and buy something from you guys it's that's the kind of stuff that they need to be asking but that, that's really and that's kind of something that when i was looking i'm looking here at a printout of, of your of just your saddle line i mean it it's kind of like <laughs> And I won't name any names, but you know, like the pop-up sewing companies that were trying to get onto, you know, the, the 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 fad of saddle hunting when when it came out, you know, maybe three, four years ago, five years ago, when it got super popular via social media. It seems like, you know, when you look at those companies compared to to what you guys have in the lineup, your stuff looks a lot more fit and finished, professional like a really polished finished product that had a lot of thought into it kind of diving into the the saddles uh you know i'm looking at the nano i'm looking at the black belt i'm looking at this two-piece right here i mean it looks like some high-end components some good quality material can you kind of dive into your your saddle lineup and like maybe give an insight on you know kind of how those were you know came to came to be known yeah um i mean like we never want to be known as a copy and paste company. Um, we, you know, we have it in our ethos. We're innovator. So, like, we don't want, I mean, the thing is, there's only so much you can recreate the wheel, right? Like, exactly. You, you can't recreate a different form of a saddle. You can just make the product better using different materials. And if you look at other saddles out there, they're all using the same materials. They're using the same webbing, same materials. Um, and that's why they all kind of operate the same and function the same. And why they all kind of like to a degree have the same like hip pinch issues and things like that. So, I mean, when we started making it like, Hey, we, I don't know how to sew. Like, I mean, <laughs> I can sew a butt, I can sew a button that pops off a shirt or a pair of pants. That's about <laughs> it. You know, or I could stitch up my finger if I, you know, get a laceration, but, um, I'm not going to sew saddles. And uh, so, you know, we were looking for partners, you know, a, you know, the first one we started working with was the fall protection company. I have a relationship with, I know they know how to make good quality gear because uh, they make it and they've been making it for 30 years. I know they could make something that was safe and quality. The problem, you know, with them with, you know, and I say our first saddle, which was our black belt, which we released last year, it's a two panel padded saddle. We wanted to go, with something that had comfort, you know, nobody was really making anything padded and, you know, everything's made out of mesh and essentially like seatbelt style webbing. Um, and so, you know, we made some changes there with the padding. We, um, also, you know, a two panel, we wanted to have, um, the, um, the two panels to be connected with an adjustable strap because, 
you know, some of the two panels on the market didn't have that. And, and it, it, I like to stand the shoot if I can. And if you stand without pressure on your saddle, and if you have a two panel that doesn't have some type of connecting device between the two, that bottom panel is going to drop down to your calf muscles if you happen to stand the shoot. So we wanted to have those things in there. And then also, you know, a, a good uh, waist belt option. So that was like our first introduction in, into saddles, uh, which was last year. And it did win uh, by Outdoor Life magazine. They did like a saddle breakdown of saddles uh, last year. And it was the best. They voted the best new saddle of 2022 or something like that. Oh, wow, man. Congrats. Um, That's awesome. But I um, I wasn't happy with, um, like, I had a lot of ideas for different types of materials that we could use on fabrics. And just them being a um, fall protection company, uh, you know, fall protection is pretty industrial, right? There's nothing sexy about fall protection. And they weren't, <laughs> yeah. they weren't up to date on, like, all these different types of materials and buckles and innovation. So um, we located a, another manufacturer here in North Carolina that um, I knew from uh, or came in contact with because of a, uh, from my climbing background. And they specialized in making some uh, climbing equipment, but a lot of like high-end backpacks and other things for the outdoor rec uh industry and like their their sewing was top notch their um knowledge of materials was like well beyond you know anything that i'd seen and like every idea that we brought to them was uh they like they knew exactly what we were wanting to do and that's how we were able to come up with the fabric that we we utilizing our like our nano and our ultimate you know like our magnetic buckles and things like that like they they just knew all the sources and and like anything that we brought up they were like they would pull out a book and show us all these different types of you know like buckles for instance and different webbing because one of the problems that i had with saddles that i'd used in the past was a lot of the waist belts wouldn't stay tight when you're walking they would start sagging that's exactly uh, i hate that so Oh, it's a big problem, especially if you're walking a few miles or if you're wearing a backpack, you know, like a backpack will even help, you know, separate that even more. So, and the reason that a lot of people have issues with that is because they use the same type of webbing that they're using um, for for their, the structure, you know, the protection, you know, like, and the waist belt itself is not load bearing. So you have to use, you know, we use different webbing there that works better with the with the waist belt buckle where it doesn't come loose when you're walking. So like our nano and ultimate, like you can tighten those things up and walk and they just, they don't come loose. Um, and so we wanted to solve that problem. And, you know, with the nano, for instance, starting with that, I essentially wanted a extremely lightweight saddle to mimic an Alpine climbing harness that I use for doing uh, alpine climbing. So alpine climbing is where you have to essentially walk, pack in, you know, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you could, you know, some climbs and mountains, you, you, you have to, you know, to get to the base of the mountain, it could be 30 miles, you know, like the furthest I've ever had to 
pack in with 15. So alpine climbing harnesses are made to be very compact, very lightweight, you know, so you can store them in your bag along with all the equipment you may need, you know, camping gear and stuff to get you there. So, like, we mimicked the Nano off of that because we wanted something that was extremely lightweight, extremely packable. Like, the Nano, you can wad it up to about the size of of a Nalgene bottle, so it takes up zero space in your pack. That's crazy. It weighs a pound. Um, And so... And by doing that, we, we also want it to be somewhat comfort, comfortable, but comfort wasn't our number one priority there. But the end result, it ended up being way more comfortable than we thought it was going to be. But it's a saddle, like we use a proprietary two-way stretch material for our uh, panel on that saddle. And we put the stretch to where it goes more horizontally, horizontally than vertically. And uh, it's a material that it's actually made here in the States that, it has a higher tensile strength and puncture resistance than ripstop, but it's not as loud. You know, ripstop material, if you're familiar with ripstop, super, super crunchy. Very crunchy. The colder it gets, the worse it is. It has a good tensile strength on it, but it doesn't have a good puncture resistance. And so, um, you know, obviously we're dealing with a lot of briars and stuff like that. So puncture resistance is very important. So we use that material in that, and, um, you know, we changed the diameter or the width of our webbing, uh, which helped a lot with uh, with uh, comfort. We changed the panel design uh, to where it didn't, like, pinch down in the corners to create hip pinch. And then in the areas where you do have hip pinch potential, we reinforced that on the Nano with uh, a foam padding there as well. Um and then, you know, we added the features to it, such as, um, you know, we have the magnetic stick clips that go on the side. So we have a, we have a, um, a stick strap that girth hitches onto your sticks that has a, a, a male button on it that magnetic, magnetically connects to a female um, portion on the saddle on each side. So you can haul two sticks up with you because a lot of people were using paracord or, you know, different types of straps or 3D printed piece uh, gear to hang their sticks on as they were climbing up. So we wanted to kind of have a um, all-in-one setup where you could have everything on there as you go up. And we also added a, um, a magnetic uh, platform connector on the back of our saddle to where essentially it's the same connecting piece, but it has a, a piece of webbing that you can loop around the rung on a saddle. So you can put the, I mean, on the uh, saddle platform, so you can put it on the back of you as you're climbing up. Um, and then we have a magnetic buckle, weight, uh, waist belt buckle. And, and then we came out with our uh, patented tacky bridge technology that's on our bridges. That's a tacky material. So you can make micro, uh, bridge adjustments to adjust your your bridge pitch angle um, for comfort, depending on you know where you like to have your tether height or um, you know however you're set up. So, so that's what we were able to do with the Nano, and it's worked out really well. Like it's you know everybody's bought it, it's been extremely happy. I mean, every I mean uh, you can check the reviews on the website; like they're all five star. And so that was like our 
we wanted to have create the lightest, most packable saddle. And then the other option is we wanted to ha have the most comfortable. So that's where the the ultimate, the black belt ultimate came in. It's a two-panel padded saddle, uh, different padding and material than we used with our original black belt. And so it ends up being extremely lightweight. It looks big and bulky in the pictures, but it's, I mean, honestly, that two-panel saddle is as light as a lot of people's single-panel mesh saddles, and it's far more comfortable. And uh, it has all those same features that we talked about on the Nano with the magnetic attachments and the uh, tacky bridge technology, but it also has a mud flat stick hauler on the back where you can carry anywhere from one to four lightweight sticks horizontally on the back of your saddle when you're going in. Um, or if you're a one stick hunter, you can put your one stick platform back there. And we made it to, uh, we call it the ultimate because it's like the ultimate do all. Like you pretty much can um, go in with that saddle, especially in the early season, and pretty much get in there without having to carry a backpack. Because um, one thing I didn't talk about was we changed the design of um, the side pouches that you use. And, you know, everybody used, uh, primarily makes some type of like traditional like dump style pouch, which I, I wasn't a big right. fan of. They flap around, they're big and bulky. So we made some that are they're teardrop shape and they're left and right specific with a top zipper. And uh, we made them big enough to where you could, in one side pouch, you can put two eight mil eight millimeter uh, linemen or tether, and two ropemans in one one pouch. So you can pretty much get everything you need in those, um, and they work with both of our nano and ultimate. But on the ultimate, you can also add a uh, lumbar pouch that can ha you can put a layer in there like a lightweight windproof or rain rain jacket or you can put like a <clears throat> set of eight by 30 binos range binder or drunk calls or whatever so it, it's a kit that's made the the ultimate's made to be the one-stop everything saddle for you um and both of those saddles too we they have the option to be able to add our upcoming uni system which is a shoulder strap system that goes on to it to where it's going to have a magnetic uh, backpack that you can connect to it so you can essentially walk in um, pretty much get get set up without having to drop all your gear on the ground yeah i found out that i'm trying to do that to be more fluid at the tree uh with uh your sticks and uh just to being able to to get up the tree without putting all your gear down i mean you just leaving scent there you get a old long nose doe uh come up yeah. and that, that's the first thing she's gonna do huh what's that's been laying here but uh yeah well and it's kind of like what what you led into jason it's like if you can eliminate a backpack like oh my gosh i mean like i'm just thinking about my own system like that's i mean that's typically half of my full loadout is a backpack now i mean there's some hunts where you know, like if I'm with dad, I'm, I'm, I'm filming, you know, GoPros, camera arms, that type of thing. You almost can't avoid it. But if you're going in for like an afternoon setup or like a quickie somewhere, like a public land, like strategic, you know, like drone strike of a sit, it's like, dude, I could get away without a backpack. 
you know, so that's, that's huge. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, with that system and then with being able to add that uni system with our optional backpack that we're about to release, like it can carry you through the whole year without having a, you can have one kit. Um, I mean, that's the goal. Well, that's, that's the reason. I mean, you usually end up with a backpack, especially in the wintertime, because you can't wear your mm-hmm. stuff in, and, you, you know, you want to carry it. But early season, I mean, it would be perfect. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, yeah, a backpack, sure, you know, snacks, your 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 sustainment stuff for an all-day sit. And that kind of leads into the features that, I mean, I, I'm, I've got to print out uh, – here of the black belt the nano i mean you're looking at it and and as a guy that's done it for a couple seasons now like you and dad obviously have more experience than i do but the molly uh the 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 g hooks that are silent on the uh on the leg closures the uh you know the strap that's there for your platform i mean that's something that i mean i i'm on, on my saddle i won't name what company it's from but i had to add a 550 paracord loop and come up with some kind of night eyes carabiner to attach my platform because when you're climbing up you have to have your platform on you because you know a pull-up rope is just not an option because usually you're you know once you leave the ground your bow is on your pull-up rope so you've got to have some kind of method that you've got to have your platform on you you've got to have your other set of sticks you know there's there's stuff that once you get to and that's kind of what we're telling you guys you guys listen to the podcast that are you know, dipping into you the the saddle the saddle hunting world the mobile hunting game. Don't practice this stuff on the eve of opening day. Like this is, <laughs> you need to get into like. I, and I know you hear that from a lot of guys in the industry, which you know I'm I am not. I'm not an industry guy. I'm just a guy that does this for fun. But I'm telling you guys, practice this in your backyard. Take that advice if you get anything out of this podcast, no matter what brand it is. Practice this with a buddy that knows what he's doing. Watch some YouTube videos. Get in your yard and do this in the daytime. Because I'm telling you, when you're standing there and it's you know early season or it's in mid-December where you're trying to get into some rut action, you're standing there at the base of the tree with a headlamp on going, okay, now what? Because, I, I mean, you can watch all the YouTube videos you want, but until you actually do it with your system, it, I'm telling you guys, you just don't be that guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it'd it'd be rough on you. Like, I mean, the beauty of, like, where mobile hunting is today is, like, you could pretty much get to a tree and get up in one run. You know, like, back in the day, you you know, trying to get up with, I mean, (laughs) before, like, I was using a rock climbing harness, you know, well, well before I was using a saddle. But, like, if you were just using, like, traditional climb, you know, uh, stand harness and you had three four sticks and a lock-on stand you're making four or five trips up up and down the tree before you get set up and you know with today's mobile hunting equipment you can get up i mean i can get up and set up in less than 20 minutes easily and you know where that plays a big part is how many times have you been set up and especially on new ground that you've never been to and you see deer you get set up one spot, you feel good, but you're seeing all the activity happening 100 yards away. You need to get down real quick, make a quick adjustment, or the wind or thermal change, and you make a quick adjustment. You know how how we're always once we get down, we're always nervous about spooking something at that point, right? So yep. you know the quicker the quicker you can get reset up, uh, I think 
you know, the less anxiety it brings upon us. Oh gosh, Dad! I mean, tell tell Jason about how we we took our rut trip to to Illinois that one year, and it was like you know going into a place blind. You, you're never going to pick the killing tree the first time in there. It, it's just it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, we even though we were kind of a not a semi guided, but we had a really good friend of mine, Chris Jones, at a Top Flight Outfitters. He's like, hey, there, here's this block of property. You know, good deer, good deer movement, blah blah blah. But he didn't tell us what tree to go in. It was just like, hey, you guys, you know, kind of figured out. And and that's what, like what you just said. You climb up in the tree, especially me and him. I mean, we were in there before daylight, and we we had trouble finding a tree where we could film out of. So that's you know some consideration that most guys don't have. But you know, trying to find a tree where you not only you're. I mean, we were climbing the same tree with one set of sticks, hanging two platforms, and trying to find one we both could maneuver in. And it's you know, it, it definitely takes that sit or two to figure out an area, especially on a piece of public where you may not even know what the trees look like. You know, so there's definitely there's definitely a learning curve, uh, and sometimes you're behind the eight ball, and sometimes you're in front of it. But you know, it's uh, it, it definitely takes it definitely takes time. Dad, you're you're more of a stick connoisseur. You know, you've you, you, your kits probably evolved more into sticks. Is kind of what your your systems you know from year to year kind of cover. Uh, Jason, kind of cover the C1 carbon sticks. You know, that's kind of – it sounds like your inspiration for the company, kind of your, uh, you know, the premier product. Kind of walk us through the C1 and, you know, kind of the advantages and, and kind of your mindset behind that set of sticks. Um, well, I mean, I – when I created it, you know, the, the benefit of carbon that I saw before, you know, when I was looking to design them was it was – it's obviously lighter than aluminum. Um, it's quieter, which is important because how many times, you know, have you been stacking sticks and they're clinging together and all that stuff? Or, you know, if, when you, people were using cam buckles, the cam buckles were dinging into them, uh, carbon, you know, it's quieter, it's lighter. And also, you know, if warmer your hands are free, warmer, <laughs> that's the big thing. We, we were thinking on the same line there. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the thermal properties of it are, are really good. So, um, you know, that was the whole emphasis. And, you know, originally I made a set of 20 inch, um, because I found that 20 inch sticks, you know, were the best for me because I'm a primarily a backpack hunter because of how far I have to go in. And I, I, you know, I haven't drug a deer in forever. So like I've been packing deer for a long time. So I carry a frame pack and, um, the 20 inch stick just fit my pack the best, you know, it kept me from getting hung up in, you know, mountain laurel or rhododendron or briars and stuff like that. Cause it was more tight to my body and fit the profile. So the 20 inch, but to get a little bit extra, uh, height out of the 20 inch, you, you know, I came up with the idea for the, uh, retractable aider, which is a, a, a cable aider system that goes up into the stick. So you essentially get 12 more inches of climbing height out of a 20 inch stick. So you're, you're essentially at that 32 inch three step length with a, a 20 inch stick that weighs, um, you know, 1.2 pounds. Well, with the aider, it's 1.4, but, um, that was the emphasis behind that. Um, and so we went with a carbon tube on these sticks and then we used a, uh, um, a polymer for our step and I researched a bunch of different polymers and found one that's essentially 
a machinable polymer that's what they call an aluminum alternative in the automotive industry, and that's what we machine our um, our steps out of. So what that did, uh, it's a little bit lighter than aluminum, but it also is quieter. So you can, when you're stacking our sticks together and they hit, they don't make any, you know, the noise they do make essentially sounds like um, a set of, like, rattling antlers. I can... I, and I've done this a lot of times in front of people, and I've honestly have had customers that have rattled deer in with our sticks. Um, <laughs> wow! And you, you you can take and rattle our sticks together, uh, and it sounds like a black rat. That's crazy. Um, so, so that's what we did with those. Um, you know, uh, and then we we had a twenty four inch option too that we sold for, I guess, uh, three seasons. Uh, but we did away with that one this year just because it streamlined our production and we were selling about 80 percent 20 inch to 20 to the 24 inch sticks jason um, what is the lead yes, time if somebody wants to order i saw where y'all was getting ready to uh ship some is y'all <laughs> try to get a good supply before you ship or is it we try they've been you know those have been made to order for a while i mean we've went anywhere from two weeks to four months sometimes depending on you know uh manufacturer um delays um it's the sticks have been the hardest thing for us and um you know i mean to be quite honest with you like we bootstrapped this whole business so like you know the built to order thing like really helped us out like getting money in to kind of help fund it but now you know we've been in a position we we try to order in advance and, um, you know, like right now there's some guys that have been waiting about eight weeks, uh, but we're starting to ship now. And a lot of that problem comes from like our machine shop. It's just been hard for them to keep up and we use two different machine shops there. Um, are and you, are y'all assembling them in house or are you having the machine shop? Put we, no, we assemble in house and we drill the carbon in house because um, machine shops don't want to drill carbon, right? Uh, because it carbon clogs up the filters and their CNC, and also there's um, the dust. It, I mean, it's nasty. Don't get me wrong. Uh, right. I mean, we we have PAPRs here that uh, powder purifying respiratory systems that we use when we're drilling, so that takes some time, and um, you know we. We sell a lot of sticks, and uh, yeah, that's a hiccup. So right now, people, you know, people been waiting two months, and you know, we what we have built up that we're shipping. You know, I can't remember how many we have that are going to be available, but um, yeah, it, it's usually a longer lead time on those. But I don't want. I mean, we we are working on a new carbon stick. I mean, I will say that. Um, that it's going to be all manufactured in-house and all we have to do is assemble here we don't have to drill anything and we're making it a lot more efficient for sure is same thing on the saddles lead time about the same or you a little quicker no we no the uh saddles are ready to ship okay cool that, that's really cool, and that's something that i mean like attention to detail is kind of what I've, i'm noticing a theme here through timber ninja but uh the the retractable aider is so nice i mean because i'm i had to add mine externally you know through 
attached it to the to the side of the step on the bottom step. And I'm I'm the type of guy, I'm not gonna lie, I don't like using the, I personally don't like an aider past the first step. Dad kind of, you know, he he's used to the hall keelums where he uses a uh an added on coated wire aider on up the tree and i just like i think that's spooky because coming down I'm like, i can't find that thing but 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 no i mean having it to shove inside the stick for the pure fact of packability dude that's that's killer like that's so nice to have yeah i mean it adds a few more inches about four inches to the length so you end up you know with like a 24 inch stick um but you know you're able to get 12 more inches when you pull it out uh yeah, it has been, and I do feel like, to your point, uh, a finding a cable aider is better. Um, yes, and and we sell pretty much every stick that leaves here. You know, a set of sticks has at least one aider, and a lot of them have four. And I do try to persuade people away from four, or at least I, if they call me, I try to educate them a little bit because it doesn't matter whose aider you use. Uh, you know, the beauty of mobile hunting and saddle hunting, too, with saddle platforms, you're able to get into some pretty obscure trees. Um, right. And, and when they're bending, if a tree's bending towards you and you got a stick on it, that aider, when it's extended, it's going to put that aider right up against the tree. So it's going to be really hard to find that aider coming down at night. And we all know, like, when you've been standing on your feet all day, there's not much blood flow or if your feet are cold, you don't have much feeling in your feet. So it's kind of hard to find that aider. So I try to keep people, uh, only using aiders on their first two sticks or if they're on a straight, a board straight tree four is okay. You know, it's understanding what you're getting into before you do, because it's a lot easier to find it going up than it is coming down. And, and it's like a, rock climbing. And, it's and, a lot and, easier to climb going up than to down climb. Yes. You have to. Yes, no, you're exactly right. And it's almost like it's one of those, uh, I call it the social media rules of hunting. It's like it falls into the saddle category. It's like guys on these forums and mobile hunting, they're like, dude, if you're not stretching your your setup out to 20, to 20 feet, you're not mobile hunting. Like, dude, sometimes you don't need 20 foot. Like like what you're saying, Dad. dad's a prime example. He'll climb up into like the brushiest, nastiest tree. If he, he's all about, like he's he's constantly like, hey, I would hunt here because of the back cover, or I would hunt here because they can't skylight you. I, you know, using the cover to your advantage, you don't need – every situation is different. You may need to be in, in 12 foot of a tree. You just never one know. Stick. I mean, one – yeah, you just don't know. Like, if you're on the side of a ridge or if you're in a, a depression or, you know, whatever the case may be, and that's kind of the beauty of having a dialed-in system. You can literally adapt to – like I, I think the, your scouting and the deer should tell you what tree you need to be in and how high. versus yeah exactly what Dad's saying and how high exa- don't don't let social media tell you to stretch them on out because it, you know the more you're up in the air and skylighted I, I think the worse you're off so I like yeah carrying, I don't understand oh, go ahead I like carrying four sticks but I don't always use them I mean you know <laughs> yeah um, so. Uh. I haven't carried four sticks in a long time. Uh, <laughs> well, you hunt a lot, a lot vertical. I mean, you hunting uh, straight up and straight down. I'm not doing that around here. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I'm like what y'all are saying. Like I look for the cover, and I mean, I, you know, I've killed a lot of deer one stick high. Um, you know, my sweet spot, especially shooting traditional equipment, uh, I like to be around 
10 to 12 feet is like as far as shot angles go. Uh, I like that, but I, I like to hunt for cover, you know, or I look for cover for my setups. And that's the thing. I don't know who or what caused this whole standard of like, you need to be 20 feet. So that's like, the, <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's, that's what the everybody shoots number for. One though. They do. Like when somebody calls me that, you know, just getting into it or like how many sticks does it take for me to get 20 feet? And I'm like, well, why do you need to be 20 feet? Like, you know, what's telling you that? And yeah. Like, like, you, like you literally can't standard. kill deer under 20 foot. Like that's what, that's what people think. And it's just like, dude, okay, chill out, breathe. Let's look at your area. You know, like, okay, if you were in your climber and you could just climb for forever, would you absolutely have to be at 20 foot? And like when you're actually up at 20 foot, like you're actually at a tape measure that says 20 foot, you're like, I don't need to be this high, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. No, just find the cover, you know, like find the trees that, and that's the beauty of, you know, like mobile hunting gear is you don't have to hunt for trees anymore. You know, when we hunted out of climbers, you had to hunt for trees more than you had to hunt for, you know, deer. You know, how many times you, you spend like, you find the right set, you know, where you need to be set up. And you're sitting there for 30 minutes trying to find the tree that you can get in. Um Oh That's, yeah, I, I mean, Dad, you you started with bakers. I mean, good gosh, what would you like, <laughs> like hug yeah, the tree and you yeah, know. I funny that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just you know, I mean, you used to have to go find that slick pine tree, and climbing a pine tree sucks anyway because it's crap gets all over you while you're going up it. But I mean, it's just like yeah, I mean, like I would look for the tree in my summit with no limbs on it, you know, and it's just like wow, with saddle hunting, I've got you know, I, I you know, we we've kind of upgraded our stuff to you know, past the buckle straps. Now we're using uh, Am Steel and Daisy Chains, and we've kind of, you know, kind of gotten on that wave of stuff. But it just, man, you're just so versatile with what you can do. I mean, your tree doesn't have to be up and down. You can hunt the, the high side of the tree with a platform, and you can you, you can make stuff work. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would say, guys, my biggest tip to the guys getting out in saddle hunting and bow hunting in general is let let the deer movement dictate where you're going to be. Don't, don't let the tree and – don't let the tree always dictate where you're going to have to sit for the morning. So, Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you find those nasty trees, sometimes you don't need any sticks because you need use limbs. Fine. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, well, I do that a lot. Oh, yeah. So, Dad's Dad, got one more question. Go ahead, Dad. The, uh, your camera that you got on the spring, uh, any good pictures yet? <laughs> oh. Man, you know what's going on with that camera? I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> oh, oh. I, I, I'm not a I'm not a camera guy. Uh, like, I I have three cameras, um, and and I'm new to sell cameras. To be honest with you, and I was telling a buddy of mine, like, I know this deer's in there, uh, and I've been, I mean, I've been hunting for three years. I know where he's at now. Like, I've really honed in his core range for the summer, or you know, early season. I know he's in there, the sign's in there, and I put my cell cam in this spot And uh, before I moved it to the water hole, and, uh, and I wasn't getting any pictures, and I'm like, man, there's active, and I went in there to, like, move it, and I'm like, man, there's, the trails are active, They're like, I don't know what's going on, and then I moved it to that, which that water hole was just, like, beat up, and I haven't gotten a picture of it, <laughs> and I was telling my buddy, I started looking at this camera settings and it showed that my, uh, this is how dumb I am. Uh, it showed that my, uh, SD card near only had 3%, uh, capacity left. 
And I told my buddy, he's like, dude, like they've been catching, it's been catching video the whole time. And it's not, <laughs> it's not triggering on. So like, I, I actually, I don't want to go back in there, but I have to, cause I want to check that SD card. Cause I know the animals are in there. Uh, cause I, I have another camera that's not, it's kind of the same area that I, I have him on. And, uh, yeah, but no, I know the deer's in there. He, he, he likes to bachelor up with uh, two other bucks, which I saw all three of them uh, October last year still bachelor up October 23rd. It's it's him, and um, he's a really good, beautiful eight-point. I mean, one of the bigger eight-points I've ever seen up here. And he's also uh, bachelor up with a, a really nice uh, ten-point that's a mature deer. I choose either one of them. Uh, and then a, a really good uh, three-year-old that, you know, if, if those, if, if, I, if I didn't know he was in there, I totally would probably shoot three-year-old. So I, I know they're in there. I've gotten pictures of them back in uh, May and they, nobody's back in there. Like nobody hunts back there. So do y'all they're ha- there. But. Do y'all have the real chocolate wreck deer up there? With the- um, Not necessarily. I haven't really ever seen many chocolate wrecks of deer. Uh, I mean, some dark tint, but not like that real beautiful i mean i've seen a few like real dark but he this particular deer is a big white horn eight point um i didn't know if that was from the hard mass because i've got that gene or i don't know if it's a gene or not or what they rub in their horn or their antlers on but uh the i have a well i've had both i've had some bleached out rack and then i've had some real dark wreck so i didn't really know if it they was what they was rubbing on or, or what caused that? I've talked to a lot of people about that because I've heard a lot of philosophies. I've heard it, you know, they're, the more they're in the sun, the wider the racks get. Um, I've heard, you know, a lot of different things, but like for my own, uh, my own observation, I've seen, I've seen like the, you know, the typical like brownish with a little white, and I've seen all white, you know, this is just talking about here in the mountains of North Carolina. Then I've seen some pretty dark ones, uh, all the same areas, which I think is more genetics than anything. Um, just because, you know, there was deer put, you know, they, they imported deer from other parts of the country back in the day. So like, I think that has a lot to do with, you'll also notice a difference in their bodies too, between some of these deer, like their bodies are just bigger. Uh, I'm not a biologist. This is just like, you know, field experience. Um, so, I've got a good yeah. eight pointer I killed here, and we we nicknamed him Coco uh, because his his horn, his antlers are. Uh, he was a dark boy. <laughs> he, he was. He's, but uh, and, yeah. and, and, and it's funny what you you know deer camp to deer camp or you know, you know group of hunting friends to hunting friends. It's like. You know, we always come up with, well, that's because he ate acorns his whole life. You know, there's always, you know, a myth you hear here and there. It's just cool to hear kind of what what kind of genetics and, and mutations you see, you know, ac- across the board, whether you're, you know, what part of the country. But so last question, and it's, it's it comes from a selfish place, you know, my inner waterfowl guy. You growing up in Arkansas, your nickname is Duck Mead after all, which is, which is cool. That, that was a cool fun fact I found out today. Do you have any plans to to chase some 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 waterfowl this year? Or are you going to mostly focus on big game? 
Uh, I mean, I try to go back home to Arkansas and hunt about every year uh, or every other year. And my son, my son's 14 and my son loves waterfowl hunting. Oh, yeah. And, uh, That's awesome. So, so uh, yeah, we didn't get to go last year. Last year wasn't really a good year. And, you know, I grew up hunting in like, you know, the best area in the world. Right. And I'm a, I'm a snob. So I'm a green timber hunter. Um, oh, you're and, so lucky. You're so you're spoiled. Now, <laughs> now, well, and now I've gotten to be even more picky. I don't go unless it's good. And, uh, so you're like, okay, are I'll, you guys actually smashing ducks or am I even coming out yeah. there? <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't go unless it's good, which, you know, these days, I mean, you can have some good luck, you know, in early season, depending on what weather's doing. But that's true. Primarily, like your your good killing times after deer season, anyway. You yeah. know, like I'm pretty much wrapped up, you know, and so I usually do most of my duck hunting these days, like latter part of season. And uh, and I didn't go last year. I just was busy, and last year wasn't a stellar year. I mean, there's a lot going on, you know. Like you know, next day the flyways are changing, which I kind of can believe some of that because i'm oh seeing dude that that's a rabbit ducks. hole we could definitely dive into <laughs> on, on a later yeah. on a later episode i totally agree with you by the way but you know yeah my nickname's duck me and i actually have a duck so limited tattoo on my back you know i've got it all hell so yeah <laughs> I, i've spent a lot of time duck hunting man like that's i've awesome. always loved whitetail hunting uh big game hunting but man there's a reason people spend as much money as they do on duck hunting. Like oh, it's, gosh, yeah. Especially when you see the, that green timber hunting, man. Like, if somebody does that once, I don't care what they've ever hunted. Anybody I've ever guided uh, that's never duck hunted took them into a green timber hole and it was good. And you see, you got a, a beautiful bluebird day. And I really like, you know, because especially when ducks get uh hole shy in the green timber and they start hitting the thick timber yeah man there there is nothing like sitting there next to a tree on logging roads in some flooded green timber and you've got you know a hundred mallards working and you know you just see them funneling above you and they're coming in and their wings are hitting limbs as they're coming in and your dog's sitting there whining like I, I don't know, man. I, I've got I've got goosebumps right now just talking about <laughs> Dude, it. Dude, it, it, it's the bomb. Like all you hear is like, <laughs> and they're trying to mm. they're just trying to get in there. Okay, so so you can't tell Dwayne about waterfowl because listen to, listen to this. Well, well I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up for you. I'm sorry to keep you so long. So oh, I, you're good. I took Dad to the Boot Hill, Missouri. First time this cat's ever put on waders. Now he, he's grown up deer hunting. Obviously, you just heard he he hunted out of Baker tree stand. So he's he's definitely. Old school deer hunting, grew up in the south, that kind of thing. Well, I talked him into going to the Boot Hill, Missouri. It's frozen over. Long story short, we worked these two specs in, Jason, and both of them almost consecutively banded, not even joking, oh, wow. from from Cambridge Bay, Alaska. And I'm like and, – and so and so, Dad's standing there holding – like his first duck hunt or the first waterfowl thing ever, and he's standing there holding two spec bands, and I'm like – I don't even have words, and Dad's like, "Well, it's it's cool, man. We're you know, it's not a big deal. We'll just get some more bands tomorrow." I was like, "No, no, you won't. <laughs> this will never happen in your life ever again. You just don't even understand." Like he didn't even grab. Like I think now he does, but but yeah, it's just like he he's got a horseshoe up him, and and that was kind of his one and done thing. So it, it just always bugs me. I'm like, okay, you just go out and get the holy grail first day, like that's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know, man. There's. There's nothing like it, man. It's so good. I wish we had better duck hunting on 
you and me both. You, I think the I only thing invited. we have is like early goose. You know, the like the, the the local goose population kind of where we live is okay, but past that, like once you get past September, we're just you know windshield time trying to get to where the the migration is. So a few yeah, wood ducks. That's about all you're going to get around here. A wood duck and a greasy September goose. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's hard, man. Like I I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I was fortunate, you know, I started duck hunting in the 80s and, you know, I was, I, I got to hunt with a lot of great guys, uh, you know, I hunted with Butch Richenbach, uh, Eli oh, wow. Haydale, Holy all crap. those people back in the day. Yeah, I, I got to hunt some really good hunts, uh, not because, you know, we didn't have money, it's just because I was so eaten up with it my granddad had some buddies and I started blowing a duck call when I was probably four or five. And wow. I was I was working ducks when I was uh, uh, I'd say I was twelve. I was working ducks, and I, was, I started guiding when I was fourteen. Oh, that's awesome! A fun fact for Daniel is he uh, he had to he moved out to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, for work, uh-huh. and uh, his number one thing he needed proof of where he lived, proof of residence, proof of residence, <laughs> and he is wanting his driver's license changed where he could get. Resident duck license. Resident yep. duck license. <laughs> that's priorities right there, boys. In the first week, that's what he yeah, needed to and, do. And and I didn't have a bed. I had an air mattress, and I didn't have cable. But I had I had some kind of utility bill to where I could go buy the. I think back then that was like 2016. Resident duck license for Mississippi back then was like 20 bucks, and then you got your yeah. your 30 dollar duck stamp, dude. 50 bucks, and I was. I was legal to go smash up that Pearl River WMA, so no, I was, and and I, I selfishly still am. Like I, I love. I mean, I cut my teeth on on big game, but waterfowl, geese, ducks, they have a they have a soft spot in my heart. But guys, seriously, we're going to close this thing out. I had a freaking blast, Jason. First of all, seriously, thank you guys from uh, the bottom of our heart for being on the show. Uh, I hope you guys out there listening, uh, you know. Take all this in, great knowledge from guys that have, have cut their teeth on this stuff, guys. So if you're dipping your toes into mobile hunting, go check out TimberNinja.com. Uh, it's a one-stop shop. So if, if uh, oh, yeah, that's a great thing. Uh, made in the USA by guys that actually go out and physically use this stuff. Good R&D. And, uh, Jason, one more time, tell them where they can find you on social and y'all's website real quick. Uh, yeah, it's all Timber Ninja Outdoors uh, on all social media and our website, com, And we do have a podcast that we're not frequent with, but, you know, our podcast is based on adventure and tactic, or I hate the word tactic, but, you know, woodsmanship. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome, man. Well, guys, thanks again for tuning in to the Part-Time Hunter podcast. Hope you got something from it. Again, go check out the Timber Ninja guys, their YouTube channel. Get up to date, get some gear, and uh, you still got some time. It's, uh, it's the beginning of... What what month are we in? I don't even August, know. Oh, we're in August, guys. Uh, so it's kind of coming down to the wire. But one month till Georgia. But you've got some time to get in your yard, get some gear, get some experience on the ground, and then get up to hunting height. Whatever that is, wherever you're at, stick you a good, nice big buck this year. Do it from a saddle. And uh, as always, boys, we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>